Good morning, everyone. We're going to be back in Mark 9 this morning. As I finished up in Ephesians, I thought I might start preaching through Mark, um, but I've spent enough time in Mark 9 and just a few sermons that I don't know if it's safe to allocate that much time to trying to preach through Mark as slow as it's taking me just to work through a little bit of a chapter. I thought about bringing this up in prayer request time, but thought it'd be easier just to say it all from up here. Um, So this isn't part of the message. Um, I'd appreciate your prayers in the coming weeks. Um, In two months, I have an assignment a preaching assignment for um, a weekend in Pennsylvania, and in two weeks I have a preaching assignment for some uh, for a weekend in Pennsylvania, and they're not the same subjects. Um, and this coming week is my last week working for Choice Books and looking at the uh, number of things I want to get done at work and the amount of time I feel like I'm going to try to fit. 20 pounds of work into a 10-pound week. Um, So anyway, I'd appreciate your prayers in the coming days and weeks as you think about it. For the message this morning, this has been kind of a a heavy and um, hard uh, thing to work through and... um, Well, I'll just start. Most Americans believe in heaven, according to various polls that are taken. And most Americans believe they will go to heaven when they die. Most Americans, however, don't believe in hell. And hardly anyone believes they will go there. Hell is an unpopular, almost unmentionable subject in our day. I wonder how many of you had a conversation this week about hell in your workplace or at school or in your community or neighborhood. It's not just unpopular in the U.S., it's also unpopular in the church. Churches don't talk much about hell today, and Christians don't talk much about hell. And I did think about it. What if someone invites a friend to church this Sunday morning? Um, or someone from the neighborhood decides to visit, and are they going to think, well, I picked a great Sunday to visit. Preacher's here to talk about hell. Um, If you had invited someone who came this morning, would you be a bit uncomfortable about this being the sermon topic on the day they came? And that is a realization that has shaken me that we as Christians can feel almost embarrassed to talk about hell. I was reading a a few different things um, that Christians have had to say about hell. Um, Ajith Fernando wrote a book about hell. Um, He said that Bible-believing Christians are often apologetic 
about the biblical doctrine of eternal divine punishment in hell. Some Bible-believing Christians wish that what the Bible says about the punishment of sinners was not true, and they find it hard to accept this truth emotionally, but because the Bible teaches it, they are forced to believe it. He went on to describe how the message Christians then often convey to those outside of the church is some idea that this idea that multitudes of people will go to everlasting pain and punishment when they die, well, it doesn't really feel right to us, but since it's what God says, I guess I just have to believe it. There are also Christians who think that the Bible is kind of unclear about hell. And maybe they say, well, what's clear is the message of Jesus is about divine love, not divine punishment. But is that true? And that's really the question in focus this morning. Is hell true and real? And I would generally think that the people who are gathered here this morning um, believe in the reality of hell. That's the title I have at the top of my notes, the reality of hell. And I think most people here would believe in the reality of hell. But if there is anyone here who wonders, um, I ask that you grant me this. Assume for a moment it is true that hell is real. It's a real destination for multitudes of people, including that it could be the destination for any one of us. So assume with me that it is true. Well, if it is true, surely wouldn't we want to talk about it? Wouldn't we want to consider? Because we would want to invite everyone to talk about it and make sure that we don't go there, that they don't go there. If hell is true, it feels pretty loving to talk about it. And it feels pretty unloving to never talk about it. So we're going to look at words of Jesus here in Mark 9. We're going to start reading in Mark chapter 9 at verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands than to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor... How will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So in just these few verses, we have Jesus mentioning hell three times. Verse 
43, 45, 47. And Jesus talks pretty clearly about hell. In fact, Jesus talks more than anyone else in the Bible about hell. Which should say something to us. Tim Keller says this, If Jesus, the Lord of love, the author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. So we need to talk and think about hell. We need to think and talk about hell biblically. Francis Chan said this, If hell is some primitive myth left over from conservative tradition, then let's set it on that dusty shelf next to other traditional beliefs that have no basis in Scripture. But if it is true, if the Bible does teach that there is a literal hell awaiting those who don't believe in Jesus, this reality must change us. If it's true, if the Bible teaches there is a literal hell waiting for those who don't believe in Jesus, this reality has to change us. We need to hear what God says in his word about hell. We also, so we need to think and talk about hell biblically. We also need to think and talk about hell humbly. And what I mean by that is we often think about hell pridefully. I mentioned the tendency that can be there in Christians to be ashamed or embarrassed of even the idea of hell, of trying to engage with someone and talk with a non-believer, to try to witness to someone and explain how the God that I serve established, how, how, how hell comes into the picture at all. And, and maybe, maybe you can even start to feel a little ashamed of a God who punishes decent people because this person you're talking to seems like a decent person. And what you're saying is that the punishment they face is this. In that Francis Chan book I quoted earlier, he confesses something that I'm afraid is a little too easy for us to feel. He says this, Like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father, I have tried to hide God at times. Who do I think that I am? The truth is God is perfect and right in all that he does. I am a fool for thinking otherwise. He does not need nor want me to cover for him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about him and all he does is perfect. Everything about God is perfect. And yet somehow, and maybe I don't think I'm alone in this. Maybe in this room I'm alone in this. This struggle with hell or, or, or this sometimes struggling to believe that hell is right. It just, it just how does this fit in with, with what we know of love and Maybe we just struggle with believing that this or that person we knew is now in hell or that someone we know might go to hell. And it's amazing that Christians can say or at least maybe find themselves tempted to think something like, well, how can I worship a God who... But then how do you finish that statement? How would you finish that sentence? And I, I heard someone say that once. How could I worship a God who would send someone to the eternal, dreadful pain and suffering of hell? But if I say, well, how can I worship a God who... dot, dot, dot. A God who what? A God who would disagree with me? 
who would do things different than I do or I would. And as soon as I say or think that, it sounds a lot like I think, well, maybe I should just be God because I could do it right. Sounds an awful lot like I think I know better than God. And here's the time to remember, this is how sin entered into the world in the first place. With mankind saying to God, yeah, but we know better than you. You said that, but eh. am I, are you, righteous enough to question the justice of God? Are you knowledgeable enough to critique the wisdom of God? Are you good enough to scorn the goodness of God? One more quote from Francis Chan. Would you have thought to rescue sinful people from their sins by sending your son to take on human flesh? Would you have thought to enter creation through the womb of a young Jewish woman and be born in a feeding trough? Would you have thought to allow your created beings to torture your son, lacerate his flesh with whips, and drive nails through his hands and feet? It's incredibly arrogant to pick and choose which incomprehensible truths we embrace. No one wants to ditch God's plan of redemption, even though it doesn't make sense to us. Neither should we erase God's revealed plan of punishment because it doesn't sit well with us. We need to think and talk about hell humbly. We need to think and talk about hell as people who realize this is what we all deserve. And yes, we know we are created with nobility. Is that the word I want? We're created in the image of God. We're created for relationship with God. We know that. And yet we have all rebelled against God. And yes, it looks a little different in each of our lives how that rebellion has has come out, worked its way out. But we have all sinned against an infinitely holy God. Which sounds an awful lot like I am infinitely guilty and deserving of justice. Which means we don't just talk about hell biblically, humbly. We also talk about hell personally. In these verses in, in Mark 9, there's some discussion about who is being referred to here in verse 42. And I don't have a tidy answer for you on that. Is this a reference to children back up in verse 36? We have children up there. Um, is it a reference to the followers that weren't part of his core group of disciples in verse 38 who were um, still working for him, casting out devils in his name? Um, is it a reference to all believers, all children of God? It does seem like it could apply to any one of us in that God would certainly say to anyone, to everyone, don't cause anyone around you to sin. All the more so your brothers and sisters in Christ. All the more so weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. The truth is there for each of us. God would certainly say to each of us, don't cause anyone around you to sin. Note the language here. So, if I had realized when I was studying for this lesson what the intermediate Sunday school lesson was going to be, I don't know if I would have been able to, to handle the week. We were looking at the death, crucifixion of Jesus. So, I went from 
studying about hell to studying about what Jesus went through. And I don't know, I woke up this morning just not feeling so great. Um, Jesus is graphic here. Better for you a great heavy stone around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. So just in the way that we can be, in the same way that we can be tempted to soften hell when we talk or think about it, I can be tempted to to soften or at least kind of make sure I keep my speed up when I work through a passage like this where Jesus gets graphic and things I don't like to think about. But he says it for a reason. He used these, these graphic images for a reason. He wants us to be shaken up and pay attention. Better for you than a great heavy stone. I don't know if you've ever seen a millstone or not. If you've ever been to CLP and seen one of those big rolls of paper, um, I guess they don't use the 11-inch wide rolls anymore, but um, imagine one of those rolls of paper but made out of stone. That'll give you a pretty good idea of a millstone. Wear that for a necklace and go for a swim. Doesn't work, does it? That's the language that Jesus says, that's the better alternative. This word from God to each of us, we need to get in our head. Take your influence on other people seriously. Don't lead even one person into sin. If you're married, how are you leading your spouse? Are you nudging them towards sin? Be serious about keeping them from sin. If you're a parent, your children, if you're a sibling, your brother, your sister, be serious about keeping them from sin. Take your influence on other people seriously. If you're a leader in life, if if in then if in this life you're a leader and you have some sort of form of leadership uh, over another person. You're a supervisor, you're an employer, you're a teacher, you're a babysitter. How seriously do you take your influence on that person's life in the light of Mark 9.42? Be serious about helping them flee sin and don't in any way be willing to cause them intentionally or unintentionally to sin. And this ties into so many parts of of true brotherhood when we think about the seriousness of the language God uses here when talking about how we influence people, pushing them into sin. If you cause someone to sin, it would be better for you to die by drowning. But then the language gets even more graphic that Jesus uses when he starts talking about looking at keeping yourself from sin. If your hand causes you to sin, here's what you do. Cut it off. Why? It would be better to enter life crippled with one hand than to have two hands in hell. Now we know from Scripture that this is not literal language, that Jesus is calling you to body mutilation. We know that um, how we treat our physical bodies is important to God. So, no, um, I am confident in saying God isn't telling you to literally cut off a hand and we know that even if you have only one hand 
you'll still face temptation to sin. Nowhere does God tell us that if if I just lose a body part, I'll be sinless. So no, that's that's not that's not what's being said here. This this then is some symbolic language to drive in a point with some very stark words. And again, this is one that we like to gloss over. We don't like to think about what it what it looks like, what it means. We don't like to be grossed out. And I get that. And I, and I struggled as I was studying. Well, how much how much do you actually focus on this? Because mm, putting people on the, putting people on edge in the wrong way doesn't get the point across, right? We need to notice that Jesus is shocking us into paying attention. And it's not just hand, foot, or eye. You need to think about whatever is precious to you. Because I tend to think that my hand, my foot, my eye, without any one of those things, I would be pretty uh, hindered. Every one of those things is pretty precious to me. But no matter how important it is for me to have it, there is nothing that is anywhere near as important as me having life. A simple way to describe this calculation is to say this, your spiritual life is worth the sacrifice of your physical life and anything in it. Your spiritual life is worth the sacrifice of your physical life and anything in it. Sounds a lot like we're talking about idolatry too, right? Anything that comes into your life that is between you and God has to go, no matter how precious, no matter how lovely it appears. Jesus is telling us here to take drastic measures to stay away from sin. Sin is deadly. It keeps you from life. Sin is always deadly. No matter how small a sin may seem, it always keeps you from life. It is rot. It is death. So we can look at all the evil, the injustice, the suffering around us in this world. All of this flows out of a sinful, broken world and the curse of sin in the world. And at the end of that path is hell. To the unquenchable fire. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus here warning us with the reality of hell. I pondered some, what, what is a biblical definition of hell? If you had to, to write it in a school book, how would you define hell? Hell is the place of dreadful, conscious, never-ending judgment for sinners. The word Jesus uses here in these verses is Gehenna, and that is a reference, that's the the Greek word Gehenna, it's a reference to a deep valley on the south side of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. In the Old Testament we read about this valley as being a place, uh, Jeremiah 7 we read about it, it being a place where idolatrous offerings and sacrifices were made to false gods, uh, even human sacrifices, and, and there in Jeremiah 7, it's described as a valley of slaughter with, with burning bodies. Um, this, this line about worm and, and fire is a quote from Isaiah 66. They shall go forth 
and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So this Gehenna um, this has this burning fire um, going day after day, worms that feast on carcasses, never lacking anything to devour. That's the language Jesus uses to describe the destination where sin leads. It's not the only language he uses. Jesus talks about, I said, he's the one who talks the most about hell in the Bible. In Matthew 13, Jesus says this about hell. Matthew 13, verses 41 41 and 42. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, that is, cause to sin, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The fiery furnace, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. And then in chapter 25, Matthew 25, Jesus talks about hell. Matthew 25, also verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal fire, fire that never quenches. And in Luke 16, Jesus describes the anguish of flames, calls it a place of torment. Second Thessalonians 1.9, we have Paul writing, and he describes the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Revelation 20 describes a lake of fire, and Revelation 14 um, People are tormented with fire and sulfur, and their smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Um, I wanted to read that one. Revelation 20. Actually, no, Revelation 14, sorry. Breaking into verse 10. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. That is an overwhelming verse. Forever and ever, um, and ever adds nothing to the meaning. Forever is forever, right? And so God's word there is, he, he's emphasizing. He's trying to get it into our heads. He's trying to make the point. We don't do well at grasping forever, and he's trying to help us with that. Forever and ever. Jonathan Edwards, many, many years ago, preached a sermon that wouldn't be very popular today. And he said this, he was, well, he said this, To help your conception, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven or a great furnace, where your pain would be much as much greater than that occasioned by accidentally touching a coal of fire, as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour, full of fire, and all the while full of a quick sense, meaning alive and able to, to feel. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace, and how long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? And after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be to you to think that you had to endure it another fourteen but what would be the effect on your soul if you knew that you must lie there enduring that torment to the full for 24 hours? 
And how much greater would be the effect if you knew that you must endure it for the whole year? And how vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years? Oh, then how would your heart sink if you knew that you must bear it forever and ever? That there would be no end, that after millions of millions of ages your torment would be no nearer to an end, and that you never, never should be delivered. But torment in hell will be immensely greater than this illustration represents. If this is true, if this is if this is the reality of hell, then we need to talk about this, and we should want people to hear about this. For many people, the question arises, is all this language about fire and sulfur, is this literal or figurative? Is it symbolic? Is hell a literal lake of fire? Or is that uh, a symbol being used? Do people actually burn in hell? In this language, well, it could very likely be literal. There are many pictures of, of judgment in the Bible from fire and sulfur raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the plague after plague in Egypt were talking quite literal. There are some people who seem to be generally sound in their theology and spiritual sense who believe there is symbolism being used to make a point rather than necessarily a literal lake of fire. But let's just consider this. Even if it were true that the language of fire and sulfur and smoke is symbolic, how is that comforting? If fire and burning and torment are symbols, then what are they symbols for? A nice vacation, a beautiful garden, happy hunting grounds? No. The whole purpose of a symbol is to try and express in words a reality that can't be expressed in words. So if you believe this is symbolism, it is oh so much worse than the reality of just a literal reading of them. It shouldn't bring comfort to anyone to think that the Bible's language around hell is symbolic because that would mean it's even worse than it sounds. I'm about to say a phrase that I, w I'm, I wasn't sure if I'm comfortable even saying out loud, but I feel like it needs to be addressed. We hear people using terms like, we had a hell of a time doing whatever. Or that was a, a hell of an experience. Those are things that should never be said. People saying that have no clue what they're talking about or what they're what they're what they're messing with, what they're trifling with in their language. Hell is the place of dreadful, conscious, never ending torment and judgment for sinners. It has no business being used to compare to some paltry experience, no matter how hard that experience may seem in the moment. And as unpopular or, or, or politically incorrect as it is to say this, multiple people are going to go there. And this is where the gospel is truly the good news. This is why John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. The depths of sin and the truth of hell are the deep darkness that show us the contrast, the bright light that is the love and grace and salvation of God through Jesus. I think again of how if you go and look at, say, a museum um, a museum display of a diamond, it's going to be on black velvet. That sparkling, beautiful, shining diamond is going to be sitting on black velvet. Why? Because the contrast shows the beauty and the sparkle of the diamond. The darkness of sin and hell are the backdrop, that contrast, that when we see the gospel sitting in front of it, that gospel sparkles and pops in a way that we wouldn't notice as much if we didn't know the realities of sin and hell. If you ask someone, do you know for sure you will have eternal life, that you'll go to heaven when you die? Most people will say, I think so. And if you ask them, well, what makes you think so? The answer is generally going to be something like, I think I've lived a good life and my good outweighs my bad. You'll get variations on that. But in general, if you're just engaging with with the average person, it's going to be something like that. Do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Do you think you will have eternal life? I think so. Why? My life's pretty decent. I've done more good than bad. There are two major red flags when I think about that. First, in light of the horror of hell, do you really want to go into eternity holding on to? think so. I don't. I want to know where I'm going. If it's possible to know, I want to know. And it is possible to know. 1 John 5.13 If you're the type of person who underlines things in your Bible, this is a verse that deserves an underline. 1 John 5.13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You don't have to settle for a I think so. The second red flag if somebody engages with that question First being, well, I think so. I'm not satisfied with I think so. I want to know. The second red flag is that idea of your your good outweighing your bad. No matter how good you are, no matter how much good you do, you have still sinned in your heart against a holy God, an infinitely holy God. Which means, what are we deserving of? Infinite, just, righteous, holy justice. And as a just judge, the judge over all, God does not and cannot just look over sin. He cannot just say, well, I know you did that, but oh well. Justice has to be dealt with. And that, yes, is when we begin to grasp the real beauty of John 3.16. To the person who has no concept of the darkness of sin and hell, there is no sparkle in John 3.16. What do I have to be saved from? I'm a fairly decent person. No. 
we are infinitely guilty of sinning against an infinitely holy God. We need the truth of John 3.16. Jesus, who lived a life of no sin, Jesus, who died that death as a satisfying sacrifice. It was interesting to note in um, studying for the intermediate class this morning, um, Jesus gave up the ghost at the ninth hour. That would have been the time when a priest would have been in the pinnacle of the temple and blown the horn to let everybody around know that the um, sacrificial lamb was being slain. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb. It doesn't end there. We know that he rose in victory. He sits at the right hand of God, interceding for me, for you. We didn't get to it in class. We were supposed to share some of a line from one of our favorite songs. And I was just going to read the whole song of Arise, My Soul, Arise. You want a beautiful picture. I'm not a big poetry person, but um, that song is one that, yeah, it works for me. Um, you want a beautiful picture of the intercession of Jesus. Uh, you can look at number 113 in your church hymnal and the interceding of Jesus, that perfect sacrifice. And remember, 1 John 5:13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, obviously, that believing here is more than just an intellectual, well, I know about Jesus, or even I believe Jesus died on the cross. We read that demons believe and they're going to be in hell forever. The question is, do you believe, do you trust in Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as the master of your life? And as we consider the magnitude of hell and the magnitude of the problem of sin, what it means to have an infinitely, infinitely holy God and sin between him and us, the drastic and even gruesome language of, of Mark 9 makes complete sense. The radical call to keep yourself and others from sin. Why? Because sin is deadly. It is wrought now and it leads to dreadful, never-ending torment. And if you're here this morning, as most people here have, have made a commitment, they have, they have given their lives to God, you've been saved from sin, stop flirting with it or giving in to it. Take drastic measures to keep yourself from sin. And by all means, don't lead anyone else to sin. And that takes laying down your life every day. It's, uh, verse 49, there near the end of where we, we stopped reading. This, was, this has always been a little weird or confusing to me. I've generally kind of stumbled through this. We read about sin, we read about hell, we talk about drastic measures to deal with sin, and then salt and fire, salt is good. And it, I've always kind of just had a little bit of a stumble as I get here and go, what? I don't, I'm not quite sure what to make of all this. 
And it was good for me to, I mean, we've just been hearing about hell and how Jesus is, and, and now now Jesus is talking about salt, and and it was good for me to, to stop and, and study this out a little more. What does this salted with fire thing mean? Um, we'll get some help by looking back at the Old Testament and the description God gives in Leviticus 2 of the worship and sacrifices of his people. In Leviticus 2, we have a description of Leviticus 2.13. Um, worship and sacrifices of God's people to God. Leviticus 2.13, And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits, green heads of grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten from full heads, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. Then the priest shall burn the memorial portion, part of its beaten grain and part of its oil, and with all the frankincense as an offering made by fire to the Lord. So here we start to see this salted with fire. And the picture here in Leviticus is a picture with this grain offering of the dedication of your resources to God. This grain offering was you dedicating your resources to God. Season it with salt and burn it. And here we have a demonstration of an offering pleasing to God. And now in Mark 9, as Jesus teaches, I see a call to lay down my life, my resources, for the one who saves me from sin. I think of Romans 12:1 and how I am to give my give give an offering of my life free from sin pure and holy. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable to God. Salt is good. Have salt in yourselves. Jesus talks here then a little bit like he does in Matthew 5 with salt and their there are plenty of references in Scripture about the effect of salt. We we won't get into that, but we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity, as we lay down our lives, as we flee sin, we can be like salt in the lives of others. Also, instead of the first part of the passage where we read about causing people to sin, we are able to season people's lives for good. We are heaven-bound while people around us are meandering toward hell. And then finally, the last, the last verse that we read talks about having peace with one another, pursuing peace. That one another gives us the idea of the closeness and the relationships we have, not just in general, but with those close to us. Pursue peace. It's not just enough to say, well, I'm going to make sure not to lead anybody into sin. I'm going to make sure not to influence them in a bad way. But we also have to put in the effort to try to season their lives in a good way. We have to put in the effort to pursue peace, to seek peace. It's not just conflict avoidance. It's pursuit of healing and, and peace. So I'm going to 
close here. I guess this is getting to be a bit of a recent pattern for me. Closing with some some questions, some practical self-inspection questions based around these verses. And the first is, where are you headed? Because you can be living a full godly life now and be heaven-bound, knowing that you can look forward to a life with God in eternity also and have a life with God right here, right now. Every person who's heading in the direction of hell has the opportunity to ask God, to give their life over to God, to accept the sacrifice and power of Jesus, to deal with their sin, to have eternal life. Second question, what sin do you need to repent of? What drastic measures is God calling you to take to keep yourself free from sin? Because sin is serious, sin is deadly, sin is rot. God has lovingly brought you to this point in your life. He is lovingly ready to deal with the sin problem in your life. And if you've got sin living there, it's time to evict it. He's calling you to repentance. Third, in what ways are you leading others to sin? And is God leading you to change anything because of that? Is there any way, either intentionally or unintentionally, you're leading others to sin? Maybe actively. Maybe it's just through passivity on your part. Um, Is there anything God would have you change so that your influence in the people around you is for is to um, if there is influence that you are exerting in your life that is pushing people towards sin is there anything you need to change fourth what are a couple or a few practical ways you can be salt in the lives of others this week what are ways that you can season for good showing the life and love of Jesus to others around you And finally, how is God leading you to pursue peace with any brothers or sisters? Are there relationships that have conflict or division and you have opportunity to be the peacemaker, to be the one pursuing peace? Jesus never I thought about it in in how Jesus talked about hell here. He didn't bring his disciples around and say, okay, today we're going to have a little lesson on hell. He gave a direct personal um, address about this is the impact for you personally to consider. I need to take that realization in everything Jesus teaches, in everything Jesus says. He's not just trying to expand my knowledge base. He's not just trying to give me a little better education. It's about personal application to my life. He's not just saying it's really bad if somebody leads somebody into sin. He's telling me, your influence matters. He's not just saying sometimes drastic measures have to be taken to deal with sin um, that, that keeps taking up residence in someone's life. He's saying, sin is a problem. If you've got sin, you need to get drastic with it. Jesus 
speaks straightforward, he speaks strongly, and he's speaking to me, and he's speaking to you. It's up to us to listen. Thank you for your time and attention. God bless you. Can we have a song, please?